Good morning. Oh, you guys do not sound awake. I know that was a long passage. Thank you, Shayla, for reading that. Just about used up your, your singing voice. There's some time to rest. So I'll say it again. Good morning. There we go. All right. Uh, if you're new or visiting with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here at Church 21. Normally, I serve or participate in the South Shore uh, congregation, but it's a, a pleasure to be with you guys here uh, again downtown. We are six weeks into our sermon series uh, on the book of Job called The Summer of Loss. How many of you have uh, been with us for most of this series? Yes, it's been a good one. It's a, it's a challenging book. So far, we've seen Job uh, lose everything and begin to question God. We've seen Job questioned by his friends, trying to figure out, what did you do wrong? Why do you deserve this? And Job defending himself, multiplying his words, clapping his hands as the passage ended. And now, Job, despite being declared uh, sort of without fault by God at the beginning of the book, Job has probably entered into a bit of sin and rebellion in his self-defense, in his answering uh, of of, uh, what he has done or what he hasn't done. He's sort of saying, like, here is my official testimony. I'm signing my name to it. Now the ball is in God's court. He has to answer for what he has done to me. And uh, if you come back next week, you'll see in chapter 38, God shows up. God shows up as Job wanted, but it does not go the way that Job is thinking that it will. Uh, But today, before uh, God himself shows up in this account, we're going to hear from someone new, this guy Elihu. And uh, this young man has perhaps been there the whole time, listening, uh, patient, uh, but now he's got something to say, and it covers chapters 32 through 37. And obviously we can't read all of that, Um, but we're going to dive into some select places and draw out some things I think the Lord has for us for today. So if you haven't already, if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, this scripture will not be up on the screen. We, We want you to have something that you can take home with you that you're engaging with. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 32. If you do not have a Bible and you would like one, just raise your hand. One of our greeters will bring you one. There we go. We have a taker. Yes, take it home with you. It's free. Uh, and uh, enjoy. All right, let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, we do uh, ask that your presence would be here. Uh, we sort of echo Job's cry. We, we want your presence. We want you to be with us and um, working with us. And we know that where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, that you, Jesus, are present by your spirit. So spirit, we thank you that you are here as you are promised to be. And we ask that you would do the work that only you can do to make your uh, holy word come alive. Uh, that it becomes a sharp two-edged sword that um, works on us and changes us and remakes us into the image of Jesus as was um, you, Father, your intention for us from the beginning. We ask that that work would be continued uh, here and now this morning, that it would continue as we go out back into the city uh, this week to be your church scattered on mission as salt and light. Uh, We ask that you would do this for your glory, that you would glorify yourself um, using us as um, your broken and needy people, um, and that you would do this also for our joy. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2008... A man named uh, Robert Wang was laid off from his software engineering job, probably because of the mortgage-backed security 
financial crisis. Do you guys remember this? Kind of a big deal. Lots of people lost their jobs. Robert used his newfound freedom to try and solve a problem, which is what engineers do when they're bored. They find a problem and then they try to solve it. And the problem that he was looking at was this. Everyone he knew was eating out too much. Why is this a thing? Well, because cooking dinner is hard work. Now, for those of you who have children or have had children at home, you know what happens. The kids are like, what's for dinner? This is actually a forbidden sentence in our home. My wife abhors it, and she's like, you're just not allowed to say that. Dinner will come at you in some form. Just trust, uh, but don't ask me. Because uh, when your kids ask this, you're like, oh, and then you think, like, I'll just order a pizza. But the problem is you can't order pizza three times a week, so uh, you, know, you have health problems. So uh, Robert worked to invent something that would change kitchens everywhere. And then eight years later, uh, so 2016, social media was really a thing by then. It hasn't always existed, but it was uh, a, a real part of society by then. And um, his invention, his creation, uh, the buzz on social media had sort of reached a dull roar. Now, at the same time, Amazon had started doing this new thing called Prime Day. You guys know what Prime Day is? It's like Black Friday, but in July, put a bunch of stuff. It just happened like a few weeks ago. So 2016 was the second ever Prime Day. And so all of these factors kind of came together, and Robert listed his product for sale as a part of this Prime Day thing, and he sold all 215,000 of them in that few days. Now, if you've ever tried to sell something on the Internet, some of you are enterprising. I know you have attempted this. If you can sell 215,000 of anything within a few days on the Internet, that's kind of a big success. That's a big deal. So this, of course, makes the news, which creates more demand. And today, uh, seven years later, it's estimated that approximately one in three American households have one of these things in their kitchens. Who has a guess of what it is? Anyone know? That is a very close guess. It's in sort of that range of, I think you can convert this into an air fryer if you buy a different top. No, because George Foreman, <laughs> Robert Wang is not a boxer. It's the Instapot. Instapot, yeah, some of you knew. So who, who has an Instapot at home? Okay, that's not exactly a third, but, you know, until you have kids, like, asking you what's for dinner, you're like, I got to get an Instapot, right? So um, we have one of these at home, and it is indeed handy. Its popularity is based on the fact that it's, like, one thing that's supposed to be able to do five things, or I guess the new one can do, like, ten things. And, um, but it's basically a pressure cooker with a computer on the front. And um, the, the cool thing about this is you can put like a chicken in it that's frozen, like solid as a block of ice, and turn it on. And a few hours later, it's like the meat is falling off the bone. And because of the computer, you can just leave. You can go shopping. You come back. Dinner is done. It's really great. Uh, I like to think of it of having like a sentient volcano in our kitchen, just the raw power of availability there. Now, obviously, non-sentient uh, pressure cookers have existed for some time. It's essentially just a pot that you can lock the lid on really tight, which sort of creates like a culinary pipe bomb in your kitchen, which you do need to supervise. <laughs> Those do explode. They probably have killed people. I made an active choice not to Google if people have died from uh, those things exploding. But um, even with Instapot, you can make mistakes. We had a problem with the seal, and it's supposed to lock so you can't open it, but somehow we opened it when you were not supposed to. 
I am still finding bits of chicken in weird places. It was truly impressive, the, the, the total coverage of everything, everywhere, chicken bits. Um, but pre- computerized or not, the main thing about pressure cookers is that they take time to build up pressure. The more time, the more pressure. And that's basically what's going on with this young guy, Elihu. He has been patiently listening to these much older guys talk. Actually, first, for like just the first week, they didn't even talk. They just sat there in silence with Job, being a good friend, day and night, not talking. Sure, that felt like forever. And now they're going round and round and round and round with these sort of like long speeches. And um, I don't think there's any kids in the room, but you guys can remember being younger, like when your mom would take you to the store and you would be there for what you felt like was like 12 hours, and it was only really like three hours. Your mom experienced it as like two hours. Why? Because our brains, you feel like you're conscious all the time, right? But you're not. It's like a movie with all the little individual frames. The movie's just, the consciousness cycles is happening really fast. But as you get older, they've discovered it slows down. And so your mom is actually not as conscious as you are in that moment. Little kids, if there are any here, which there aren't, but this has already felt like 20 minutes to them. To me, it's felt like five. To some of you, you're like, I just, we just got here. So it happens to different time frames. So younger, younger people are in sort of like a, a purgatory when they're at Costco or at, at church. I, can, I remember that feeling of just being like, we've been here forever. Um, and so you've got this Elihu guy. He's much younger. His experience of this is just, it's taking forever. These guys going round and round. And he's also bothered by two very specific things. One, Job just seems to be bad-mouthing God. He's just bad-mouthing God. And secondly, these other guys are not doing a very good job of calling Job on it and defending God's honor. And so he's slowly getting fired up more and more with this righteous indignation. And when he finally speaks, he's sort of like, sorry for jumping in here, but I feel like a wineskin that is about to burst. Now, how many of you have a hollowed-out goat at home filled with alcohol? None of you. So we'll go with Instapot. He's like an overheated Instapot, even though only like four of you have one. But he's going to explode and talk for the next six chapters. And uh, so again, we'll, we'll skip around, but let's get into it. First, uh, there's a bit of a scene-setting moment. Chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Bacharel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak with Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now remember that in this culture, there was a deep respect for elders. As Westerners, we tend to miss some of this nuance. But if you grew up in like India or China, this is going to resonate with you. You're like, it's disrespectful for this younger guy to take these four older guys to task. Um, but he can't keep silent any longer. They have essentially lost the respect of Elihu, Job and his three friends. So verse 6, And Elihu, the son of Bacharel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years. You are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and let years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. So he's realizing, he's saying, just because you guys are older, I'm realizing doesn't necessarily make you 
wise. And that wisdom actually comes from the Lord, from the Spirit, from the breath, as it's rendered here, that's placed in us, and from the Holy Spirit. So he feels justified now in speaking up, and does so with a certain fearlessness, because he has to. Because if he doesn't, he's going to explode like a wineskin, like an Instapot. Verse 17, I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like, a, is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. And so he feels like he's going to burst, and not just from righteous frustration, but it also appears that the Holy Spirit is at work in him, compelling him to speak. And this is a thing that can happen. Um, perhaps some of you have experienced this. It feels like a, a bubble coming up through your throat, throat, opening your mouth, forcing you to speak. I've had this described to me. I've experienced it once. Um, I was talking with Trenton, Pastor Trenton, uh, about this uh, a, while, a little while ago. It was funny in the sense that, like, it seems like my allotment of the charismatic gifts from the Lord is just experience a whole bunch of different things, like one time. One speaking in tongues, one time this thing, uh, one vision, one dream, one ecstatic experience, like kind of like a sampler. You know, if you go to a restaurant and they're like, they brew their own beer, which one shall I have? And I'm like, all of them. And they bring out the two-by-four with the little cups, you know, and you, the Lord knows I like samplers. So I see, I get all of these different little experiences, and it is not a comfortable experience of the Holy Spirit compelling you to speak. That seems to be happening here. And, and so despite his youth, he speaks, and no one challenges him. This is another interesting thing about this figure in this, in this account, is that of everyone else other than him, gets challenged on what they say. Uh, that they get um, someone responding to them. And so it's some people put forth that maybe it's actually Elihu who took this historical account and wrote it down and put it into poetic verse. We don't know who the author is. Could have been him. It's an interesting possibility. So then what does he say across these six chapters? Well, we're going to look at where he challenges Job on a couple of statements that he makes. We'll see that in the next chapter, 33. Uh, he gets specific. And then we'll see, he goes on to challenge Job's three friends for their inability or their lack of defending of God's honor. And he will take that mantle on and defend God's honor. We'll see that in 34. And then in the last three chapters, we'll see him sort of shift and speak more generally as if there's an audience present. And there may have been other people there listening. Or perhaps him just saying, I'm, I'm no longer responding to you, Job, or to you three friends, but I'm going to start declaring my own thing, uh, what I have to say. So uh, turn with me then, turn the page, chapter 33, and we're going to look in verse 1 as he begins to speak. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Earlier, we see Job asking for like a referee or an umpire. He's like, I wish there was someone who could like call foul here. Like, I didn't do anything wrong, and God is crushing me. I want someone to like be an umpire for this. And so Elihu presents himself as a a possible candidate for this, for that umpire. Verse 5, answer me, Job, if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy on you. So you wanted an umpire? I'm human like you. I can do this. Present your case. And then he picks up in verse 9, 
two statements that Job made earlier and then responds to them. Verse 9, he says, you say, Job says, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. So that's one of Job's assertions. Secondly, Job had said, behold, he finds occasion, he being God, finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all of my paths. And then Elihu renders judgment. He says, behold, in this, you are not right. You are not right. So he takes issue with these two assertions. First, that Job says, I am innocent. I'm entirely innocent of wrongdoing. And secondly, that God is treating him too harshly, like an enemy. And Elihu says, you are not right, Job. First, no one is truly innocent. We know this from Scripture. Uh, Paul writes, no one is righteous, no, not one. King Solomon is, is writing and speaking, and he's saying, like, um, when you sin, you should do these things. But there's a parenthetical in there where he says, everyone sins, you know, which everyone does, everyone sins. And so though we have at the beginning of the book God saying to Satan, Job is an upright man. He's a good guy. His perfections that, that God is ascribing to Job do not align or match with God's perfections. That's not what God is saying. God's saying Job is a good guy, the best they come, but he's not perfect the way that God is perfect. Uh, and so Job's assertions of his innocence are, as I mentioned at the very beginning, are probably at this point riddled with sin and rebellion in his own heart. He is not innocent. Second, God is not wrong to utilize rough means with us. He does so for our good. Elihu unpacks this verse. Look down at verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, when they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn a man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread. Meaning you're so sick, you, maybe some of you have experienced this, you're so sick that you can't eat for like days. You lose a whole bunch of weight. You're like, this is great, but I'm so sick. With continual strife in his bones, so his life loathes bread, his appetite for the choicest food, his flesh is so wasted away, that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Jump down to verse 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring his soul from the pit, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he might be lighted with the light of life. So Elihu is saying here, God in his grace draws us away from destruction, away from that pit, if uh, repeatedly. If necessary, using all means necessary, even harsh means God will use to draw us away. We've spoken about this before, the severe mercy of God. Elihu is making it plain that God allows and uses suffering to cause us to turn or return to him, the author and source of all life and joy and light. The only reason this is necessary is because we naturally don't choose life and light. We choose darkness, and death. We, we naturally go this way. We are not innocent in this matter, that this is the very ground and foundation of our rebellion, that we choose that lesser thing. And the fact that we do so repeatedly, yet God is faithful again and again to pursue us and to turn us back uh, two times, three times from the pit. So suffering, therefore, is a bit of a signal. That is what he is saying to us here, that we should pay attention to it. The Lord speaks through suffering. Many people say, the Lord is silent. 
I ask him, I reach out to him, nothing. He ignores me. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you in some small, quiet way through the suffering that he has allowed in your life. If you're taking notes, this could be your first point, that we should listen to our suffering. Certainly we read scripture to hear from the Lord, um, but we should also listen to our suffering. His voice is in the midst of these things. Elihu goes on to challenge Job's three friends. If you turn the page to chapter 34, this was read for us already, all 37 verses. Thank you again. Uh, So he states in verses 5 through 9 that Job has wrongly accused God as per the two arguments that he already uh, refuted in the last chapter and that these wise men have failed to defend God's honor. And so now he's going to begin to defend God's honor himself, the way it should have been done. He starts in verse 10. He says, therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and of the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job's three friends seem to be uh, more focused on figuring out what Job did wrong. What did you do wrong? And they never really stopped to talk about God's angle, and defend God's honor. And he makes it clear, in a way they didn't, that God never does wickedness, that God is never unjust. And then he begins to unpack this and explain the, then the complexity of God's relationship with us uh, and the world, that he's so far, far and high above us and yet so intimate and fully apprised of everything that is going on in the world, that he doesn't have to lean in and look and investigate to rightly judge the situation of an individual person. He can just immediately execute judgment whenever perfectly because of his nature. There's no court case, no trial, no investigation. Look at verse 21. For his eyes are on the way of a man, and he sees all of his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. So God doesn't have to investigate, doesn't need a court, he doesn't uh, need to think about what is right, he just gets it right automatically all the time with his actions. So Elihu will continue exploding his sort of instapot chicken bits everywhere, but we already have enough from this, we can draw a couple of more points. So first was we should listen to our suffering, but secondly, we shouldn't badmouth God just because we don't understand when something bad is happening. Job is doing this, he's beginning to speak improperly of God, that God deserves our reverence and faith regardless of our life situation. Not to say that we can't ask God questions, not to say that we can't cry out to God, why God, why are you allowing this? Why is this happening? We're not obligated to suffer in silence, but we shouldn't malign him. Actually, scripture teaches us we should do the opposite. We should praise him and thank him, even in the midst of suffering. Paul writes about this to the Thessalonian church. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Even in the midst of persecution, he tells them to be thankful all the time, regardless. And if this seems counterintuitive, it is. It is counterintuitive. And yet there is a deep wisdom and joy and peace that is found in being thankful in all circumstances. Job has lost sight of this. So Elihu is reminding him and us. 
Uh, Thirdly, real life, though, isn't as simple as good for good people and bad for bad people. Now, if you look at like other wisdom books like Proverbs, Proverbs basically lays that out. If you do this, it will go well with you. If you do this, you will fall into this pit or the stone will roll back on you. It's very black and white. And uh, Ecclesiastes and Job, as the other wisdom literature books in the Bible, do a really good job of sort of rounding out the black and white world that Proverbs gives us. They're saying, yes, most of the time, if you live in an upright way, that you will prosper and the Lord will bless you. But sometimes also the Lord allows bad things. And so we get this from Job and from Ecclesiastes. um, That God allows bad things to happen to good people. And for many reasons, and we don't always understand why. And we may never understand why this side of heaven. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, speaking to the challenges they faced as they're being persecuted, jailed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. And it's incredible that Paul would use these words, the persecution that they would be facing. And he's like, a light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. Is this not our experience? Does God not allow, for those of you who are walking with Jesus, you're on team Jesus, you're walking, does the Lord not allow life to beat you up? It's not like you're walking with like a force field and you're like, nothing bad ever happens to me, right? That's not our case. That's not our experience. He allows the chisels of pain and suffering in our lives to shape us. Anyone here ever done any woodworking? You're like, I'm going to make a table leg and you get a lathe, you put the piece of wood. I'm speaking as someone who has seen this only on YouTube. You put a piece of wood in the lathe and it spins and you apply the chisel. The wood is dead, so there's no screaming, but it would be painful, right? The chisel, and you make this beautiful thing, but there's a removing that's occurring. Um, Well, that really, no one would, anyone read science fiction? Okay, we got a couple people. So I'm rereading my favorite, one of my favorite science fiction series called Red Rising, because there's a new book that came out this last week, like the sixth one. I'm going to the beach on vacation, and I'm like, I'm going to reread all of the books to get to book six so I can remember what happened, because there's a lot going on. And in the books, there's a guy who is remade from the bones up, and it's such a devastatingly painful process that everyone else they've tried it on has just straight up died. They're like, we're splicing your DNA, and they're like, I'm dead. And this guy actually even dies, and they have to like restart his heart to bring him back. But when he is remade and he survives, he is glorious almost imperishable. It's awesome. It resonates with our hearts if you're a student of Scripture because, you know, that is our destiny, that we will be reborn, remade, resurrected to power physically in the image of Jesus. That this process of being remade begins now as the Lord works us like we're on a lathe. No one promised that it wouldn't be painful. Um, If you, this is probably more broadly helpful, if you've ever worked out, most people have attempted this, right? Um, There's a cadre of people in my congregation in the South Shore who have gotten into this like off-brand CrossFit thing called Blackburn Athletics, and they kept pressuring us to go, pressuring us. Finally, week before last, my wife and I went, and I mean, I'm familiar with, I like, I lift weights, I'm familiar with muscle pain, but the next two days later, I could hardly get out of bed. 
I could hardly sit down. I couldn't get, I was like trying to get in the car, trying to get out of the car. Why? Because my body was being remade by the horrible things I did to it for 40 minutes. And it was very painful, very painful. There we go. Finally connect with exercise. Yes. So uh, when suffering comes, we shouldn't badmouth God. We should be thankful because it is part of the process by which we are being remade. He is allowing it for our Good, and we should look not to the past and not even to now, but to the future, to the unseen things, as Paul writes. The future rooted in the presence of God. And yet so many people reject God. They don't want God's influence. They don't want God's uh, help. And they resent his efforts. Instead, they choose separation from God, which leads to death. Jump with me over to chapter 35, starting in verse 5. He writes, look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Elihu's point here is what we're, what we're doing on this earth for good or for evil doesn't impact God as much as we think it does. We are not as important as we tend to think uh, that we are, that the universe doesn't revolve around us and that God is so massive and doing so many different things, keeping count of all these different things, managing the universe, all these angels, the, managing even the evil spirits that are at work, everything. He's everywhere and dealing with all these things. And, and yes, while he's intimate with us, he is also like uh, untouchable. In a certain sense, he is unaffected by what we are doing. And yes, as image bearers of God, when, when you sin against another human being, you're sinning against God. We can't miss that. We, just as when you disrespect the Canadian flag, you are in a sense disrespecting Canada. We are designed to be God's flags, planted in creation, flapping in the wind, declaring his dominion and his glory and his goodness. Except we've all fallen over into the mud. Uh, Our flags are on the ground. However, just like burning a Canadian flag doesn't actually hurt Canada, you're like, well, you know, it's disrespectful, but it doesn't actually hurt Canada in the same way we aren't actually harming God. We aren't actually touching him uh, with our good or with our ill. He is above or separate, just the way that we've, we've had, a, we had an interesting year with ants in our kitchen. Usually they come in, it gets warm, they start looking for food, you kill them. But this year was like multiple rounds of battle that I had with them. And there's different sizes and different little guys, big guys. And, you know, if they're interacting and they're, like, stealing crumbs from one another or even being generous with be like, bro, there's enough crumbs for all of us. Here you go. Like, that does not impact me as a homeowner at all. Whatever they're doing for good or for ill, I'm like, take the poison back to your queen and die. That's my participation in your life. So in the same way, like, as we're doing all this stuff, it is not impacting God in the same way. And therefore, God does not answer our questions as Job is like questioning God. God does not answer our questions when we are asking in pride and brokenness. Like he's just, he just doesn't hear them. He's disconnected from us in that way. And it's this pride and self-rule and hubris that we have that leads us to that pit of death that Elihu uh, keeps talking about. The one that suffering can help guard us against. And from here, uh, we're going to go into 36 chapter 36, and he's going to paint a very broken picture of humanity. First part of chapter 36, look with me at uh, verse 13. The godless in heart cherish anger, and they do not cry for help when he, God, binds them. Have you ever been so angry with God that you're just like, whatever, and you just sort of swan dive into sinful, selfish, uh, selfish choices? 
clinging to your anger. And then God binds you in your sin, in your choices, giving you over to your sin as he is faithful to do to preserve your free will. You want that? You can have it in spades. And yet you don't ask him for your help. And he offers help. You, you reject it. You keep your fists clenched against God's face. Leave me alone. I'm too angry. Have you ever been there? I have been there in my life. This is uh, sometimes the picture that is painted for us when considering the, the idea of hell, of eternal conscious torment. It's a difficult doctrine from Scripture. Scripture is very clear um, that it is um, literal and eternal and conscious. And so we wrestle with that. And one of the ways, one of the variables people wrestle with is um, whether or not the idea that people, if they had the option to leave, whether or not they would just choose to stay that they stay there because they are too angry with God. Um, they do not want his help, and so they don't leave. C.S. Lewis kind of seems to lean this direction. Again, it's not from Scripture. It's just a theory, but it's an interesting way to begin to process like how uh, the doctrine of hell may be worked out in reality. But for those who uh, live this way with their fists clenched in anger against God's face, their persistence in self Direction, this leads them down a path of self-destruction, down towards that, that pit. Look at verse 14. They, these people, die in youth. Their life ends among the cult prostitutes. Now, many of the ethno-religious groups living around the people of God utilized cult prostitution as a part of their temple worship of their gods. And you would pay to have relations with a woman or actually more often with a man and uh, it was a very popular model in the surrounding regions. It was a constant temptation for the people of God to bring this, allow this culture to bleed into their own temple worship, which was, of course, abhorrent to God. And young people would waste their wages, spending themselves, emptying themselves in these places, leaving with nothing. And Elihu paints even a sadder picture of dying among the cult prostitutes. This is... Uh, in modern parlance, you'd say this is almost like overdosing on drugs in a dirty bathroom stall alone at the back of a strip club. Just sort of at the, the end of a life of a series of self-justifying choices. And we can say on some level, um, but for the grace of God, there go I. It is the grace of God that keeps each of us from being uh, that person, from um, being dead in a ditch. That he turned us away, each of us from the pit. Fourth point for us this morning, that without the grace of God, including suffering, and including suffering that we don't always fully understand, we would lead ourselves to death. Without the grace of God, we would lead ourselves to death, that pit that Elihu talks about. And so he goes on from here, leaving behind our brokenness and rebellion, and he goes into our last chapter for this morning, chapter 37, and begins to expound upon the nature of God with greater and greater exaltation, using illustrations that fit his context, namely the weather. Now, if you read chapter 37 from like a sort of like critical, secular perspective, you'd be like, well, he's deifying weather. He's deifying the sun and the thunder and the lightning. And, uh, and certainly at that time, heavenly bodies uh, were worshipped as gods, but uh, God made it so clear for his people that they were not to do that that these things were rightly recognized as God's uh, work and not his person or persons. And if you read the whole chapter, you can kind of see where Elihu makes reference that, that this is the work of his hands, not his personhood. But back then, when you spent a lot of time outside, I know today many people are indoor cats, 
And, uh, but if you were back then, you spent a lot of time outside. There weren't such things as like rockets or nuclear weapons. And so the scariest thing was like weather, storms, lightning, hailstones, this kind of thing. And so the weather works on two levels as an illustration, not only of God's power, but also of his inscrutability. Look with me at chapter 37, starting in verse 2. He writes, keep listening to the thunder of his, God's voice, and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice, and he does great things we cannot comprehend. So Elihu's argumentation at this point, as as far as it goes, is basically this. God is perfect. He doesn't do wrong things. Uh, We are imperfect, and we tend to naturally reject God. Uh, By default, we just go downhill towards the pit every time. Uh, Third, that God is terrifying in his power and holiness, that we can't stand before him. We're powerless before him. We can't actually even understand what he's doing uh, most of the time. He is inscrutable like a storm. Therefore, what we really need is a mediator. We need a mediator. Perhaps someone from heaven who could like rightly intercede for us, know how to talk to God for us uh, because we just can't do it from our limited perspective and broken inability. Though we are years before Jesus in our passage today and years before most of the prophecies and uh, sort of like glimpses of the Messiah, we do see a glimpse of Jesus and even the gospel in our passage, which would again support the idea that Elihu is speaking by the power of the Spirit as he is doing this. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn back to chapter 33 because we skipped over this intentionally. But if you go back to chapter 33, starting in verse 22, he says, and he's speaking of like a generic man, generic person. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, and that word there is, is, is messenger, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then a man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and I perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. It's amazing. Do you see this guy? He's going down towards the pit, down towards death, walking away from God, and yet a mediator shows up, someone from heaven, who is able to show him the way, be the way, sort of put flesh back on his bones, and let him see God. Restores to him a righteousness paying his ransom, redeeming his soul, his sin not counted against him. It's incredible. Do you see the gospel? Do you see that we need someone like this? We need someone from heaven to mediate for us, to speak for us. And is this not clearly Jesus Christ, our Lord, as he's presented in the scriptures? Has he not descended from heaven that we might ascend? Has he not redeemed our souls? Does he not offer us righteousness? Not a righteousness based on our merit, but an alien righteousness from God to us, gifted to us. 
Is it not Jesus who will mediate between us and God? Does he not stand at the right hand of the Father, even now interceding for those who trust in him? That he provide payment for our sin, making us right, that our sin, though we sin, it's not counted against us. It's amazing. Elihu's point here is our fifth point, that we need a mediator and we need Jesus. If all God ever did was allow you to suffer, to let you know that you were going the wrong way, you'd be like, oh, okay, I will try harder. I will go this way. All we would have is condemnation and religious striving. But we can't do it. Elihu says God has to go after us time and time again to redirect us because we can't save ourselves. We need this mediator. We need someone from heaven itself who can see more clearly and connect us with the Father. So Elihu ends with the power and the might and the fearfulness of of the presence of God represented in a storm. And next week, chapter 38, if you come back for this, I don't know who's preaching. Are you preaching, Peter, next week? That's a very good point. Next, do not come back next week and have brunch with your neighbors. But in two weeks, thank you, Peter, uh, someone will be preaching, and we're going to see God show up in a storm, an actual storm. He's going to speak to him out of the whirlwind. But right now, the storm is more uh, metaphorical, that we are trapped in a sense of this infinitely powerful storm that we can't understand and that isn't safe and that we can suffer, right? And when we are, despite our hubris and our pride and our feeling of strength, we are uh, very quickly reminded of our weakness when we are faced with a storm, right? Like how much of Canada is on fire right now? Have you ever seen a forest fire with your bare eyeballs? I did once. It was terrifying. It was across the valley. And I was like, man, how fast is that thing moving? We need to like backpack out of here. It's very scary, right? Canada's burning, right? So we pray for rain, but we pray too hard. And now there's flooding, right? People are being swept away. And then I was in New York a week before last and my watch is like pinging me. They're like, there's a tornado coming near your house. I'm like, what? like tornadoes in Quebec, there's a thousand tornadoes a year in Quebec, but it's so big, only moose ever are affected. So, but it landed near Mirabel. Did you guys know about this? A tornado like an hour from here, right? We are, we're strong until we come to face a little bit of wind, a little bit of rain, a little bit of fire, and then we've shown how weak we are. And Elihu's like, this is how weak we are spiritually. We feel strong, but in the face of the storm of God's righteous and just anger, and wrath against our sin, we are very quickly undone. We are like Peter, walking in the water, trying to get to Jesus, but unable to even get to him. And we need Jesus to bring us to the Father, but we need Jesus to bring us to even to himself. We need that grace. We can't make it. Like Peter, who just starts sinking, we need to just look to Jesus as the waves are starting to go over our face, that he would reach out and draw us to him and bring us to the Father. If, if you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to, if your fist is clenched against God's face because you have been unable to ask for forgiveness, you have been unable to forgive someone else, something that has been done to you, ask the Lord to help you open your hand towards him that he may take your hand and draw you to himself, to life, away from death. You say, oh, I've already done that. I'm walking with Jesus. Why is God still allowing this mess, this storm in my life? Well, sometimes God allows us not just to remake us, but also uh, to remind us of our dependency, to keep us dependent on Jesus. 
You know how it is when things are going good and you're like, I'm going to read my Bible right after I watch Netflix, right? Like, but then the Lord's like, turns up the storm and you're like, oh yeah, the Bible, I need this. I have to ground myself. The Lord allows this to keep us connected to him and to shape us for our eternal form, to sort of match the glory of the eternal dwelling that we're headed towards. That those, those golden shores with the silver waves lapping that go into green mountains and blue mountains and white mountains into the forever city of God, the glory of God, that we might have the strength physically to walk those paths, to sit in a room with angels of great power, to enter the fiery presence, the furnace of God's actual presence and not be turned to ash, that by the blood of Jesus that we would be sanctified and made holy and that we could then look upon God's face and not be destroyed, that we would see the light as Elihu says. When you consider all of that, then like with Paul, we can say that this is a light momentary affliction. This little thing that's happening in my life now is a light momentary affliction, and I can thank God for it because he is causing me to look to him because I tend to go this way, and I'm looking at him, and he's remaking me that I might be able to be in his presence. And this is imminent, uh, this future for us who trust in Jesus. It is permanent uh, for us. If we have said, not I, but you are Lord, and we have trusted him. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Rescue me. St. Anthony of the Desert Fathers around the 4th century, he one day realized, I, on a particular day in the future, on that day, am going to see God. I'm going to meet God. And so he immediately moved to a cave in the desert to spend the rest of his waking life preparing for that moment. Now, that's bad for mission. You know, you can't just go live in a cave. Salt can't just stay in the salt shaker. We need to be salt and light out in the world, you know. But we should learn from his and be inspired by his devotion to this idea that you will, all of us, see the face of God someday. And we will either climb into his lap or be uh, holding our fist against him and destroyed in his presence. Next week, two weeks, two weeks from now, Peter, uh, God shows up to talk to Job. But for now, I would invite you in this uh, week, as you go home, as you're on mission, as you are salt and light in the city, to reflect on Jesus as your mediator, that he is the one uh, that is rescuing you from the pit. He is the one who is turning you back by allowing these things. To read your Bible, to listen to your suffering, and allow yourselves to be remade to be ready to see the face of God. Pray with me towards this end. Lord, we do ask this. Uh, With with trembling hearts, we invite uh, the storm of your presence into our lives, that you would not leave us to our own devices, that you would not leave us in our self-righteousness, walking our own path, uh, that you would make us undone, that you would cause us to sink beneath the waves so that only you are our option. Um, That you would have that severe mercy on us. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here whose fist is closed against your face, um, that you would open their hand. That uh, We don't ask you to trump free will, but Lord, we, we know that you enable and that you woo us because you are glorious and our heart desires the more glorious thing. Lord, reveal your face to us. Even now as we respond in worship, as we digest uh, your word, Spirit, we ask that you would be a present doing this work in our hearts for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen.